Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. It's the first Food Focus of 2017 with Trent and Leighton Kling. Big countdowns later on in the show as we count down our five least successful food-related businesses of 2016, our five most successful of 2016, and also five to look ahead to in 2017. But we lead off with one news story, this from Shake Shack, as they've announced that they're rolling out a new option for all their U.S. locations. That option is gluten-free buns. They piloted the gluten-free buns at a select few locations during the summer and must have sold well as they announced this rollout across the country. Interesting to note that the rollout will not include some of their contract locations or some of their licensing locations inside ballparks or stadiums in the U.S., but still a big movement for one of the first QSRs to really introduce gluten-free buns throughout the country. Yeah, and Shake Shack really is a restaurant chain, an emerging chain that is focused on the quality of their ingredients. And they see this anti-gluten movement, and they've really tried to capitalize on this. And so you see with this limited rollout over the summer, them really trying to see if there is a demand for gluten-free buns. And from what they saw, there was. And so they're going to be charging $1 more for the option, which in my opinion is going to be a problem because here is a fast emerging restaurant chain that is really trying to appeal to the consumers that are health conscious, albeit they're still a burger chain, but their ingredients really speak to the fact that they care about what they're trying to give to the consumer. So with this $1 charge, they are going to be differentiating themselves from some other chains that aren't charging the additional fee for the gluten-free option. So again, gluten-free options are more tailored towards people with celiac disease or other ailments that may cause them to be allergic to gluten. But having said all of that, having a gluten-free option is a natural route for Shake Shack. Again, as they look to more quality ingredients and really they've been focusing on all natural ingredients this far. They promoted their beef as a 100% all natural Angus beef with no hormones or antibiotics ever. So this again, and it's just a natural extension for the company. But as for Shake Shack, they promoted this in a really good way. They took to Twitter almost immediately to announce these new plans. And as you said, this is going to be in all U.S. locations with the exception of stadiums or ballparks. But this is going to be good for them. They received a positive response on Twitter after this announcement. And then also, if you look at just how many people are afflicted with celiac disease in America, it's said that over 3 million people are living with celiac disease. This represents obviously a little bit over 1% of the population. And then also, according to the National Foundation of Celiac Awareness, over 18 million Americans have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So this is a real issue. So for those to just scoff at this and just say that they're trying to get on the gluten-free bandwagon, there is something to this. And this really does promote the idea that they are health conscious. You know, on the Food Focus, we try to go above and beyond the press releases to the execution phases of some of these programs. And while I like what Shake Shack is doing here, and I don't have the same problem with the $1 upcharge that you might, seeing as that's pretty standard across the industry right now. You look at restaurants like, for example, Pie 5 or Domino's that offer a gluten-free pizza. They charge anywhere between 10 to 30% more over their traditional wheat-based products. But where the rubber needs to meet the road here is in proper training of the staff. If you're really going after a segment of the population that actually has celiac disease, they're not just eating gluten-free for the purpose of a diet or they just have mild sensitivities or something of that nature, you have to train your staff as to cross-contamination principles. So they need to make sure the gluten-free buns don't touch the same place on the flat-top grill if they grill them as the traditional buns do. If they plan on using that same spot on the grill, they need to have something with which to clean that. Additionally, Shake Shack can go above and beyond their outreach to those with celiac disease by having dedicated fryers. And to this point, I can't really find anything on whether or not they have dedicated fryers. They haven't gone out 
on their website and mention the fact that they have dedicated fryers. The reason dedicated fryers are important for people with celiac disease is if you have a fryer, let's say at Wendy's, that's used for the breading on the chicken nuggets or the chicken nuggets themselves, as well as French fries, there's going to be cross-contamination possibilities there if you dunk a bunch of wheat or gluten-covered chicken nuggets into that fryer. Of course, that gluten or the gluten particles will come in contact with the French fries and be a real issue for those with actual legitimate celiac disease. The same thing is true here of Shake Shack. If they're really looking at reaching out towards this population, one of the best things they can do is bring in a dedicated fryer or say at every location there is one fryer. It is used only for French fries. And that way you can serve those with celiac disease or with severe gluten sensitivities or with Crohn's disease, that type of thing, without having to worry about the possibility of cross-contamination. So a great program. They're one of the first to have done this. You look at other QSRs, even the likes of Five Guys, for example, they still don't have this in place. You know, Subway has gluten-free buns or gluten-free bread at some of their locations, but not all franchisees have it. Even Pizza Hut is struggling with the nationwide rollout of a gluten-free crust for pizza. And you look at pizza, they're really the one sector of the QSR industry that's been able to implement gluten-free crusts on a lot of their offerings and do so with a fairly high rate of success and a low rate of cross-contamination. So there are a lot of dynamics here, and I'm sure Shake Shack is aware of all of these, but that's why I say it's probably going to be important on an execution level to make sure their staff are trained in every single one of their restaurants, not only certain ones or not only certain areas are trained up. You have to make sure all your staff are trained so that you avoid cross-contamination because what you don't want is someone with celiac disease to come in, order a gluten-free bun for a sandwich, get that cross-contamination going, and then that person with celiac disease gets sick posts about it on social media, that type of thing. So you can create a massive backlash if you don't properly train your employees and follow a certain protocol when you're talking about gluten and gluten sensitivities and diseases like celiac. Since this is sort of a special edition of the podcast, sort of a year in review, we will be looking at Shake Shack shares as they've remained flat over the 52-week time horizon. Shares are currently trading for the company around $36 a share as the company approaches its two-year IPO anniversary. So the company went public in January of about 2015, and shares had quickly spiked in the first quarter in 2015 to all-time highs of around $93 a share. And this actually valued the company at an exorbitant $3 billion. The company was founded in 2004 as a food cart in New York City, but it remains unclear right now as the company has faced a lot of competitive pressures where they're going to be going from here. We did announce that they have increased their growth plans for 2017, but they did not make our list for the most successful restaurants in 2016. Yeah, so far their growth plans have been pedestrian at best, and you look at them adding 15 to 20 stores per year in some circumstances, and that doesn't really put you in the same growth phase as a company the likes of Five Guys, which we'll talk about later on in the podcast. Well, as Leighton alluded to, we wanted to discuss our top performing and bottom performing food businesses of 2016. As we go back and take a look at the year in review, we did the same thing on the Retail Focus podcast where we named Sears Holdings our most disappointing retailer, at least successful retailer of 2016. And we named Ulta Beauty our most successful retailer of 2016. We'll begin our list on the Food Focus, much like we did on the Retail Focus, by talking about some of the companies that we considered for our least successful food-related businesses of the past calendar year. We'd considered Red Robin, uh, Brinker International, who runs most of the Chili's restaurants in the United States, although they were kept off the list simply because of their ability to expand, even though their same restaurant sales were down. And we also talked about maybe including Whole Foods on the list because they were really spinning their tires over this last calendar year, but decided to keep them off the list because of their introduction of their 365 concept in store format. And we thought there was a lot of optimism there heading forward. So we kind of cheated. We have a tie in one position. We'll talk about that in a second. But first, the fifth restaurant on our list of the least successful restaurants in 2016 is Buffalo Wild Wings. Their latest quarter was their third quarter that ended 
September 25th, and same-store sales decreased 1.8% at company-owned Buffalo Wild Wings and 1.6% at franchise Buffalo Wild Wings restaurants. Revenue did increase overall, but that was due entirely to an increase in the restaurant base. But the more alarming thing for Buffalo Wild Wings, they went through a menu simplification. They went through a lot of different processes to try and get those same-store sales up, and we're just not seeing those numbers come in up as opposed to down. Yeah, absolutely. And we had reported actually on the Food Focus podcast of their new program that they implemented to really try to compete with other to-go programs in the restaurant industry. And so they had tried to bring people in promising that they'd be served their food very quickly on a to-go basis during their lunch hours. And this really hasn't shown that it's worked. And then obviously you have the problem with Buffalo Wild Wings and that people are ordering to go a lot more often, whereas Buffalo Wild Wings years ago would be more of a destination. People wanted to go to the restaurants to watch the college football game or the NFL game, but you see an actual slowing of NFL ratings in 2016. You see some solid ratings from college football coming in, but overall, people are wanting to eat in the comfort of their own home. And this is definitely evident if you look at startup companies like Blue Apron that now have a massive following through their app where they're able to purchase meals get them to their home and prepare them there at home. And then also you see that the low price of food or the relative low price of food here in 2016, we've often talked about restaurant deflation, grocery deflation, grocery stagnation. Well, these are all things that really play into how the consumer behavior has shown up in 2016. So people are going to the store more and then preparing their food more at home. So aside from Blue Apron, people are cooking more at home. And this is really eating in to the entire concept that Buffalo Wild Wings has built out over these past few years. And and you really see this in the growth prospects for 2017 as they've projected only 45 to 50 new openings, whereas this year in 2016, they opened around 65. So the future is not looking good, although you can look at the international growth and say that this is going to be an area of a renewed focus. However, they still haven't really proved out their brand overseas, and they really have not proved a strong following as they look to expand in that area. The crucial key for Buffalo Wild Wings may be to adjust their expectations. We talk about alcoholic drinks, their beer, their wine, being both expensive at Buffalo Wild Wings and also high margin items with mixed drinks. Anything with alcohol in it going to be higher margin for Buffalo Wild Wings than some of their more standard fare. Well, you mentioned the to-go programs, people trying to capitalize on those in companies like Wingstop, for example, are seeing positive comps, whereas companies like Buffalo Wild Wings are seeing negative comps. And that's because alcohol never really part of the Wingstop play. When you look at that restaurant, they're having success in the to-go portion is Buffalo Wild Wings. But the problem is that means people aren't staying there and lingering. You mentioned NFL ratings are down. Ratings across multiple sports are down overall. You look at different sports leagues, and in some cases, like the NBA, for example, you have four or five very good teams. But if those teams aren't playing one another, it can result in fairly boring competition. The same thing goes with the NFL. And you could even extrapolate that onto college football, where the college football playoff ratings so far through the first round looked pretty good. And Buffalo Wild Wings also carries the UFC. But again, across the board, people seem to be choosing to watch these events and eat in the comfort of their own home. That doesn't mean that restaurants can't be successful as we'll look at our top five list in a few moments, but uh, that certainly does impact Buffalo Wild Wings bottom line in the end. A company that partners with Buffalo Wild Wings sits at number four on our list, and this is the Boston Beer Company. So the maker of Samuel Adams, the share price down this year. The share price has really taken a hit this year. If you look at the current price, around $169 a share, 52 weeks ago, the share price of Boston beer was around $202 a share. So this represents the fact that the shares are considerably down this year. But then also, if you extend that time frame out to about two years, you see that the shares are down about 48% from their all-time high. And so they have a lot to be thinking about as a company, as they are seeing increased competition We talk a lot about the increased competition here domestically with a lot of new beer offerings. And this is something that they've really been trying to compete against, but the price point is really something that's been hindering them. 
you've seen the craft beer market develop certainly over the last five to ten years, and part of this is because of the popularity of Sam Adams. You know, Boston Beer Company was one of the first to promote brand extensions. You look at them on the East Coast, you look at New Belgium in the Middle States or the Rocky States, and then you look at beers like Sierra Nevada, which we talked about months ago on the Food Focus podcast, and also Anchor as being brands that really help to promote the craft beer movement. The problem is they promoted the craft beer movement to the point where it's become so popular that people no longer go to Sam Adams beers. You talk about Sam Adams in much the same way, your traditional Boston lager, that is, in much the same way as one would talk about a sweet white wine. Oftentimes it's said of wine drinkers that they will start out with sweet whites and they always end up moving to dry reds in the end. However, in the case of Samuel Adams, Boston Lager, a lot of craft beer drinkers will start out with Boston Lager or Blue Moon, which is brewed by Molson Coors or some other similar product, and then move to more niche craft beers as they hone their taste and they'll look for more local products. And I think this is becoming more and more evident as you look at their bottom line. You look at net income for the company, you're seeing a massive decrease year over year. For the last fiscal quarter, we have information for the Boston Beer Company saw net income of 248 per diluted share. This is a decrease of 37 cents over last year's same quarter. And you're looking at top line revenue decreases as well of 39.7 million during this last quarter that we have information for. That's the fiscal 2016 third quarter. So you're seeing that borne out in sales numbers, but also in terms of consumers' taste. Now, credit to Boston Beer Company. They continue to try different things. And their Utopia line, for example, has been very popular among craft beer drinkers, but they're no longer moving their standard flagship beers like they once were in the Boston Lager. And other specialty beers like the Cherry Wheat just aren't as popular as they once were because so many more people are drinking craft beer and they've moved on past Boston Lager, which they see is more or less a last resort for craft beer if they have to drink it. We go to number three on the list, and we're going to be talking about Blue Bell, which is a company that manufactures ice cream here in the United States and distributes to nearly 30 states. So this is really a story about lingering problems from food safety issues dating back to about April of 2015. In 2015, they had some food issues with listeriosis, and this was a multi-state outbreak that actually shut down their production line for about five months. And so the CDC said in 2015 that consumers should not be eating anything recalled by Blue Bell for quite some time. And this really obviously hurt the company as they are a privately held company, but having to then shut down their facilities and lay off a lot of workers really ended up hurting the company. They tried to rebound here early in 2016 and then you see as recently as in September, the company said that they had a batch of edible cookie dough and they had to recall it due to third-party supplier issues, the third party being Aspen Hills. They said that these products may contain listeria. So this added on to the already problematic production issues that they had in 2015. This really hurt the company, and this is why this is on our list here. You see that the Blue Bell had really tried to expand their production after the initial recall, and then now it seems as though they are under some very high FDA scrutiny. You see that Blue Bell has had a heightened sense of environmental testing for foodborne pathogens, and this has really hurt their cost of goods. You see that the margins are going to be decreasing for the company. And this, again, after they laid off around 750 full-time employees and another 700 part-timers near the middle of 2015. In fact, just this last week, it was revealed that Bluebell wants the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to release it from doing the more expensive production plant environmental testing that was put into place after the initial outbreak back in 2015. They would like the testing to fall more into line with industry norms, but no doubt the more recent recall of the cookie dough related ice cream hindered that entire process. No word yet from the FDA regarding that process as of this point, but some optimism here for Bluebell. One might definitely say that they've hit the floor after the initial listeria outbreak and they've only up to go from here. The question is, how do they work themselves back into the same market share that they had pre-outbreak? 
in 2015. Well, a tie for third place because we weren't really sure whether to include Blue Bell as kind of an outside food company supplier that's private. So we inserted, just in case someone were to call us on it, Rave Restaurant Company. They're the owners of Pi 5 and Pizza Inn. And really, this has almost completely to do with the fact that comps are down so extensively at Pi 5. You look at same-store sales down double-digit, quarter-over-quarter in some of their more recent earnings releases. Yeah, absolutely. And then also, if you look at their stock price here for the Rave Restaurant Group, down 71% for the trailing 52-week period. The stock was trading around $7 a share at this time last year. The stock has now hit almost record lows here at $1.88 a share, representing a market cap of only $18 million for the company. And you know, Trent, this is a company that really was started out as a concept to compete with the likes of Chipotle, which we'll mention here a little bit later. But this was a made-to-order pizza, and really this was a franchise proposition so they're presenting themselves to franchisees in domestic markets saying that we have a lot of growth opportunity here we talk a lot about the very large pizza qsr industry here in the united states it's approaching 34 billion dollars annually and so they definitely saw an opportunity here to have people get what they wanted when they wanted in a short amount of time and they've been able to execute well however the lack of quality of ingredients and the lack of brand has really brought this company down. And as you mentioned, you really see that in the comps. You're looking at quarter over quarter decreases. This is not good for a company that wants to present themselves as a profitable company with a bright future for future investors and franchisees. So this is going to be a tough 2017 and definitely a company we're going to be keeping a close eye on, again, as they are publicly traded. Their struggles have resulted in them announcing a planned rights offering that took place just before Christmas where they're seeking $3 million in new funding. They did introduce a new online ordering platform, a mobile app for Pi 5 rather than their Pizza Inn brand extension. But this seems a little late in coming considering how large Pi 5 had expanded to by the time they finally got their mobile app, which is one of the reasons, no doubt, why they saw comps decline in light of the fact that a lot of these other companies in the same market space it's becoming suddenly very crowded as everyone wants to become the chipotle of pizza had their online apps in place prior to rave we move up to number two on our list and it's a company that'll probably show up at number one on a lot of other lists chipotle most of their struggles were caused by again a foodborne illness outbreak so they have things in common with Bluebell, who was also on that list. They lost a number of customers during the end of 2015 and the first quarter of 2016. And despite a number of different promotions, they were unable to bounce back. But I think you and I see optimism in years ahead. Just their 2016 wasn't up to expectations. They didn't bounce back as quickly as some thought. A lot of analysts to begin 2016 were saying that it was going to be a very pivotal year for Chipotle. It was either a make or break year as far as the improvements in food safety and the improvements in getting store traffic back up to previously record high levels. But they ended up failing to execute in a multitude of ways. Here we see for their last quarter, their third quarter ended September 30th, revenue decreased 14 0.8% to only $1 billion. And then comparable restaurant transactions decreased 15.2% and comparable restaurant sales decreased 21.9%. And so you see this as it pertains to the future in 2017. It's going to be good for the company and that they're going to be going up against easier levels here from these 2016 comps. But overall, you see that the thing that differentiated Chipotle the most has taken the biggest hit in 2016. Again, referring to this latest quarter, this third quarter 2016, restaurant level operating margin was only 14.1%, a decrease of 28.3%. And I say this is a differentiator for the company, or at least it was because Chipotle has focused time and time again on the quality of their ingredients and the sourcing. They have a lot of local sourcing that happens, and they're really focused again on the, just the high quality and the manner in which they produce these ingredients for their their customer. And it was quite surprising to a lot of analysts leading up to 2016, how they were able to keep these massively high margins, despite being focused on the quality of their food. So you see that this has really taken a hit. 
because of the implementation of all of the marketing programs to get people to come back into their stores. We talk about the Chiptopia revenue having been fairly good, but really eating into the margins because of all of the free food that they were giving away. They also gave away a lot of buy one, get one coupons to loyal customers and through a lot of marketing campaigns via magazines and newspapers. So this is something that the company will have to be changing in order to keep the level of operating margin up going forward. But this is to say that the company is still profitable, even though they burned through a lot of cash throughout 2016, throughout all of these marketing campaigns, they still did produce some net income over the last quarter, but the stock has failed to bounce back from its long time highs in 2015. And Bill Ackman's hedge fund, Pershing Square, has said to take a 9.9% stake in hopes to turn this company around. When you kind of touched on one of the issues with this happening to Chipotle and the way it did, is their margins had always been a little bit slimmer than most restaurants because they were so focused on the quality of ingredients. And when their customer base overall shrank and same-store sales went down for the company, that really started to eat into those margins that were a little bit slimmer than your traditional restaurant overall. But I think you and I both expect them to show maybe even positive comps beginning as soon as next quarter. Well, the number one store on our list, you you might ask why they're number one and not number two and Chipotle being number one when you talk about double digit decreases in comps for Chipotle and that type of thing. But again, you mentioned Chipotle was profitable and although they did eat into their cash on hand, still have quite a bit of cash on hand. And we decided to go with a restaurant that seems to be in a bit more of a dire position after 2016, and that is Ruby Tuesday. This FSR was once considered a bellwether for the restaurant industry in the U.S. However, they have seen significant shrinkage in their overall sales and their U.S. sales in particular. Yeah, absolutely. And you see here in August of 2016, the restaurant chain announced they would be closing a whopping 95 underperforming locations. And this is something we went in depth through the Food Focus podcast earlier this year, but this represented 13% of their overall store count. And the company said that these were underperforming locations and they assured shareholders and analysts that these were the most underperforming locations of their store count. But at the time, the company had around 700. 24 locations. And so now you see that having this lesser amount of locations, they're going to see 2017 decline in overall revenue. But before they took off all of these locations, these 95 locations in September, total revenue had already declined for the company in the latest quarter, their first fiscal quarter, 2017, by 8.2% to $256 million. So this was really a big hit for the company that had already seen same store sales decline around two to three percent and so you're seeing and comparing other restaurants in this space and saying that good numbers right now are in the positive two to three percent range and they are really mirroring this with the decline in same store sales but again if you were to compare for the first quarter 2016 that represents the prior year of 2015 sales they actually had a 0.6 percent increase however pre-closure and impairment expenses were already $30.2 million in this quarter. And this was actually before they had finished closing the 95 restaurants previously mentioned. As you look at the finances here for Ruby Tuesday, just not anything to like. In fact, most of it negative, including the loss per diluted share and the overall net loss in the last fiscal quarter. And when you talked about, Leighton, some of the same-store sales declines over the last fiscal quarter, those numbers are actually slightly better than the numbers they had in the previous quarters that they had reported. I think the biggest issue with Ruby Tuesday is they just don't know where they want to be within the restaurant marketplace. Do they want to be more family-friendly? Do they want to serve more upscale diners? They kind of mentioned both things in their latest investor presentation, but you really can't have it multiple ways. You can't be a salad bar, you can't be a family FSR, and you can't be an upscale casual dining restaurant all at the same time. So they have to figure out going forward where their niche is in the marketplace, what they're going to do, and how they're going to begin to win customers back. And we talked about it before coming on the air. They talked about closing down 
13% of their least operational stores or least successful stores overall. But really, you look in the majority of their stores right now aren't very successful. Tough times for Ruby Tuesday, and that's why they're atop our least successful restaurants of 2016 list. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look just at their menu, they have the same basic framework that they had about a decade ago. Again, Ruby Tuesday primarily has American cuisine, but they really haven't done anything in terms of big limited time offerings or anything of that nature. However, this year they have been promoting their online e-club, which is a loyalty program for Ruby Tuesday. But I think this is an issue of too little, too late for the company overall. And you see this really in the shares, the share price of Ruby Tuesday down a massive 38% for the trailing 52-week period where their shares are trading currently at around $3.20 a share this time last year, trading around $5.16 a share. So this represents a $199 million market cap. And just to kind of put this in perspective, one final thought on Ruby Tuesday Here we have Shake Shack, which is obviously a different restaurant format. It's a QSR versus an FSR. But Shake Shack has just over 100 locations now internationally and domestically overall. But their market cap is $1.26 billion. Here Ruby Tuesday has a market cap of less than $200 million, but still has 630 locations. So again, if you put all of this in perspective from the shareholder's point of view, it's not looking too good as far as their growth prospects going forward or their sustainability in making profitable locations for the ones they have remaining. All right, well, it's time now to talk about our top five restaurants operationally for 2016. I say restaurants, really food-related businesses for 2016. Here are those that we considered that didn't make the final list. We had Shake Shack. They had tepid same-store sales at 3%. Did have new products coming into the marketplace, but just a little bit too late, and their expansion wasn't as big as what we were looking for coming into the year. Panera operated very well, just missed the list. Arby's, their product innovations with their different protein LTOs or limited time offers, put them close to making the list. And also Jack in the Box, strong operational presence, but didn't meet the results that we saw from them in 2015. Still, all of those restaurants, very optimistic future for them. We begin at number five and Dunkin' Donuts. Dunkin' Donuts has been able to eat into Starbucks market share regarding coffee. They've also been able to build out their food offerings and ad locations all at the same time, all in the same year. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that that company has really been focused on, a very dense store base on the East Coast. And this is something they've been looking at for the last two years or so, moving westward and really trying to expand in areas that Starbucks has a very strong brand awareness in. But this is something that the company has executed well on. You see that margins have remained flat for the company, but this isn't that bad considering they are expanding so very rapidly. And then also, I like the strategy of Dunkin' Donuts is implemented over the past six to 12 months and really trying to get in airports where Starbucks are in to try to really make their brand known to those who aren't really that acquainted with the brand. Again, very strong presence on the East Coast, but by getting into these airports and other regions of the country, people get more acquainted with what they're selling. And we had talked a little bit about Dunkin' Donuts in mid-2016 in regards to how they're really focused on renewing their breakfast sandwiches. They're looking at the quality of their ingredients, changing the ingredient list around in order to make the sandwiches a little bit more competitive, a little bit more higher end, if you will, and not really passing that price down onto the consumer. They didn't raise prices when they bettered the ingredient list for their breakfast sandwiches. And then also, if you look at their cold brew offerings, a lot of their locations are now offering cold brew, something that is a big hit in 2016 and something that they just had to absolutely get on if they wanted to be competitive. But a lot of positive signs for Dunkin' Donuts, again, as they come in at number five on the list of top performing restaurants. You know, their most recent quarter saw double-digit growth in their espresso and iced coffee categories over the same quarter, which would have been the third quarter of 2015. They also, and this is what I really like to see as far as a business from the execution standpoint, their diluted adjusted earnings per share increased 15.4% quarter over quarter to now 60 cents per share. So that's a massive increase, especially considering their comps only grew for Dunkin' Donuts in particular 
2.0%. Note that we said Dunkin' Donuts and not Dunkin' Brands as a whole. Dunkin' Brands as a whole is seeing some difficulty from Baskin-Robbins, which actually saw a comp sales decline of 0.9% during the last fiscal quarter. But big optimism ahead for Dunkin' as they released intentions to open as many as 65 new restaurants in the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area at the beginning of December 2016. So they may well make a return appearance on this list next year. Let's take a look at number four on our list. And number four is we have two pizza companies in the top five. Here's one, Papa John's company we haven't talked a lot about on the podcast, but their latest quarter ending September 25th, their third quarter of fiscal 2016, they had increased earnings per share 27% year over year. And their same store sales up 5.5% for North America and even higher than that internationally. Yeah, absolutely. And this really was a banner year for Papa John's. You alluded to the fact that this isn't a company that we talked about too much for the Food Focus podcast, but this is a company that definitely performed well and beat a lot of analyst expectations for the year as a whole. So for this last quarter, as you mentioned, they increased earnings per share by 27% year over year. Same store sales increased 5.5% for North American units, which is something that we're more focused on than international units, although they executed very well on the international level as well, seeing same-store sales come in at a positive 7.6%. For this latest quarter, they had 36 net new openings, which was actually within guidance, and they increased full-year earnings per share guidance. Along with that, they saw an overall revenue increase, and this is encompassing licensing revenues and other revenues coming in. But 8.5% increase is what they saw for the quarter, bringing revenues up to 4224 million dollars for the nine months ended so we're looking at 2016 more as a whole aside from the latest quarter 2016 revenues were 1.27 billion and this actually represented a 4.4 percent increase year over year so you can see that they're operating at a very high level through these same store sales and through increased marketing activity you see a lot of advertising expense but you see it really be effective you see a lot of television ads surrounding big football games and the like and this has really helped the company to boost traffic along with the fact that they've implemented a really good application for online ordering so customers are really seeing the convenience for this application and are definitely utilizing it and you can see that via the results the company has posted yeah, their stock up 57% for the trailing 52 weeks, which is absolutely enormous. And actually, they've been mentioned by several traders as one of the best investment stocks of the last fiscal year and the last calendar year as well. Number three on our list is a competitor with number five on our previous list. You'll remember that Buffalo Wild Wings is number five on our least successful list. Number three on our most successful list is Wingstop. They have an historically high earnings per share growth rate of 26.7%. That's compared to the industry average of 10.8%. Positive comps pretty much across the board for Wingstop. And you look at their latest quarter, their domestic same-store sales rose 4.1%. They keep going up. And part of that is because they really don't factor in the dine-in experience. They're almost exclusively a to-go operation and they're very focused in what they do. Absolutely. And it's really been proven out, their streamlined concept, and it's really made an easy transition for franchise operators to come aboard. And so if you look at the long-term prospects for this company due to the ease of franchise growth, the CEO, Charlie Morrison, sees long-term sustainable restaurant base in the United States being around 2,500 restaurants. So that's a massive increase from where they're at now, currently around 650 locations. Granted, this year they've already increase the amount of locations by about 150. So you see a company that's been operating at a very high level. And what's interesting to me is I went on their franchise website. They're extremely transparent and where they see growth opportunities from here. So they've already listed certain markets where if you are interested in joining the partnership, the franchising team, if you will, they have already outlined some areas within certain states that they see opportunities. And for those states that they don't, they're 
they're either too penetrated with Wingstop locations already, or they're just simply not ready to expand in that certain region. So we need to keep in mind that their growth, their very large amount of growth, has been very responsible. And this is coming from a restaurant operator that has been around for over 20 years. One of the more amazing things about Wingstop and what they've done in the last calendar year is you've seen this earnings per share growth rate be historically high for Wingstop as a whole. Yet at the same time, margins shouldn't be that high for a company that relies on the chicken wing as for many restaurants, its highest input cost. Buffalo Wild Wings mentioned that because of the sheer amount of companies selling wings right now in the United States, that costs of wings have gone up astronomically, yet Wingstop is still able to cook up good margins for their shareholders and they're able to execute in their 650 locations. We talk about that 4% comps growth, but also top-line revenue growth system-wide of 14% during the last fiscal quarter. So you don't see anything to not like from Wingstop. And as you mentioned, franchising is very accessible for them. It costs about 300 grand all the way up to about 900 grand to open a Wingstop restaurant. But they mentioned their initial investment payback is a much quicker rate than a lot of restaurants in that same field. We go to number two on our list, and this is our first burger chain that we'll talk about in our most successful restaurants of 2016. We head to the QSR industry and Five Guys, and really making the difference for Five Guys in 2016, just the sheer expansion throughout the country as they begin to fill up the white space that they see. Yeah, we can't really see too much of their numbers because they are a privately held company, but they do offer a lot of franchising opportunities throughout the United States, and we can see through that how much they truly have grown in the last decade or so. But they had a banner year in 2016, and they really have a great presence on social media. This is one of the things I wrote down in my notes and that they are constantly engaged on their social media feeds. This is a level of engagement that you don't see with other restaurants. And so I think this really is a differentiator for the five guys chain. I think one of the first things you see on their website is a link that says, talk to us, basically imploring the customer to engage with the company freely with either advice, complaints, or praise. And this is something that the company really has taken to heart. They really have created a great culture. And for the company overall, this has really played into the fact that they care about their customers and they care about their employees. And this is something that really helps for the public perception of a company like five guys. You look at the employees, the employees are always paid above minimum wage wherever they are in terms of a region. And they even receive customer service satisfaction bonuses from secret shoppers and the like. And so you see these new openings in 2016 as through the last quarter, we've really kept an eye on how these locations are performing. Given the competitive space they are in, they see very high traffic levels through these new openings and they see additional units being developed in terms of about 1,500 in total for 2017 through about 2020. This is in addition to 1,000 locations locations they ended the year with this year in 47 states and six Canadian provinces. So again, a great year for five guys, but still a lot more room to grow for the chain. Just the growth prospects alone wouldn't be enough to put them on our list as we're always somewhat wary of companies that have these enormous growth prospects. But the reality is Five Guys has been able to execute wherever they see growth. We talk about just the exponential expansion they've been through in the last five years. But one of the things they did to differentiate themselves in 2016 was begin to insert shake stations into their different restaurants. And these were hugely popular, hugely successful. And again, we don't see the individual breakdown of the numbers, but from the information we're getting from franchisees and the like is that these shake stations have been excellent additions. They've rolled them out slowly to more and more five guys throughout the country, and they're being included into new five guys construction. So lots going on here towards the positive, And that's before we even begin to talk about the melt shop. The founders of five guys have started a restaurant concept called the melt shop, which now has four locations in the U S and they see growth prospects here as well. It's basically a grilled cheese shop with simplified ingredients, but a variety of topping options. They've got an increased credit line of over 200 million with the hopes of expanding both melt shop and five guys. 
And we haven't talked about their online presence yet. They were one of the first QSRs in the U.S. to introduce an online presence, to introduce a phone app, and customers continue to love both of those as the app and the website have grown along with Five Guys. What is the number one business on our list on the Food Focus podcast? Most successful 2016 food-related businesses. Well, we look back to the pizza QSR industry and none other than industry darling Domino's. Domino's, just like Five Guys, which we talked about moments ago, they have embraced technology. They've embraced a complete rebrand across their franchise. And from about five years ago to today, it's a completely different company to the point where they're seeing same-store sales growth in the double digits some quarters. And that's on top of same-store sales growth that was already in the double digits last fiscal quarters. For Domino's latest quarter, revenues were up 16% to $522 million. You can see through the previously stated company, through Papa John's, this is an increase over what they've been able to produce. You see domestic same-store sales for Domino's grew 13% in this latest quarter. And as you mentioned, this was up against a double-digit comp of 10.5%. So not only are they executing year over year, but they're also executing on a sequential basis. This represented the 22nd consecutive quarter of positive sales for their U.S. business. So this is a company that was without a doubt going to be our number one pick for the top restaurant of 2016. You see the international division also posting extremely strong results with quarterly same-store sales growth of 6.6%. This is going to be an industry that is growing internationally. We talk about Pizza QSR, again, achieving a $34 billion market opportunity in the United States. The international growth marked the 91st consecutive quarter with international positive same-store sales growth. And then you see how the company has really grown their presence. They have over 13,252 units as of September this year. This is a global number. But you see how the company has expanded. Just in the third quarter, they increased their store count by over 1,100 stores. So this is a company that is not only just massively growing, but this is a company that is growing in a positive, profitable way. Earnings per share for the company in the latest quarter was $0.96. Cents. This was up 43.3% for the prior year. So again, we talk about execution. We talk about profitability. And this is a company that's able to do both year after year after year. And this is probably the best year 2016 is for Domino's. Anytime you mention expansion of 1,100 stores in a calendar year, that's pretty amazing. We talk about five guys just having 1,100 locations and we talk about how well they're executing, but really that's even magnified for Domino's. And they still have a great price to earnings ratio, at least one that eyes future growth of 39.6. They have a $7.8 billion market cap and shares of Domino's up 45% for the year. So executing well on all fronts. Now, we usually finish off Food Focus by talking about something that Leighton and I each ate that's new to the world of food over the last few weeks. But we're going to finish off today in the same way we actually finish off Retail Focus by looking ahead at some of the businesses that we're looking forward to in 2017. We see 2017 perhaps as a make or break year for them. We considered for this list Yum Brands after selling off their China branch in particular and how that goes for them. Freddy's, especially after the death of their co-founder recently. And Dine Equity, who's shown positive growth rates in terms of restaurants, but they have two restaurants in Applebee's and IHOP that are competing in a very tough field right now. As we saw in our first list of the five least successful restaurants and food businesses of 2016. But Leighton, why don't you really quickly go through our top five businesses to watch for this next calendar year? Yeah, so number five on the list was Wendy's, which, you know, they've been implementing a lot of limited time offerings for 2016, which a lot of other restaurant operators in the space are doing. But they keep on refurbishing restaurants, and this is something that they've been needing to do for quite some time. They still have a very large store base that still needs to be looked at as far as refurnishing and trying to get their stores up to date with some of the new hardware they've put in the back for the cooks and the like. And then number four on the list, 
Bojangles, which again is not a company we talk a lot about on the Food Focus podcast, but there is a lot of hype surrounding this brand and they've created such a strong brand following through social media and the like. But this is a chain again that is up against a lot of competition. We talk about a lot of chicken QSRs that are competing in a very tight space and 2017 is going to be no different for Bojangles. Yeah, we have Starbucks in at number three, if only because we're anxious to see how they implement and execute on their Starbucks reserve concept and also how they eye growth in China. Additionally, Starbucks having some supply chain issues this last calendar year. So how do they deal with those and can they fix their cold brew problem? We talked about stores oftentimes running out of cold brew before the afternoon, considering they see massive growth potential in that area. Our number two on our list, Shake Shack, we talked about at the beginning of the show, slow growth, but could potentially start to increase plans in calendar year 2017. And then our number one food-related business to watch is actually a convenience store in Quick Trip. They're beginning to roll out non-gas locations, and they've got grand plans for their QT kitchen concepts that have done very well in their convenience stores and gas stations they have already. So Quick Trip potentially eyeing growth, substantial growth in 2017. And they are up against major competition from the likes of 7-Eleven, who had just announced a couple months ago they plan on doubling their store count in the United States. And then you see a lot of acquisition and merger activity within the convenience store spaces. A lot of people are seeing this as a high-margin area that really caters to those that are very concerned about convenience. They want some quick snacks. They want to be in and out. And with Quick Trip coming in with the store-within-a-store concept you mentioned with QT Kitchen, This is going to be an interesting year for 2017, not only for Quick Trip, but for convenience stores overall. Throw out a couple more businesses that we talked about. Raising Cane's Chicken, same situation as Bojangles as Raising Cane's continues to expand northward. And also, you notice we didn't really talk a lot about grocery stores. Most grocery stores were even across the board other than we mentioned Whole Foods at the top of the show simply because of grocery deflation and stagnation in pricing. But if we had to pick one supermarket to watch during this next calendar year, it might be Sprouts Farmer's Market as they have 38 straight quarters of same store sales growth well that'll do it for us on the food focus podcast for Leighton. i'm trent make sure and subscribe on itunes stitcher and any other podcast listening service including podbean and check us out on twitter at the food focus we'll be back with retail focus later this week this has been the food focus podcast As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries.